0: Hello, and welcome to Dirt Rich, seasonal conversations about food and farming. I'm Tyler Carlson, the Silvopasture and Agroforestry Project Lead for the Sustainable Farming Association. Today, I'm talking to Stephen Tomford, Senior Ecologist at Stantec, and an expert in the fields of oak savanna research and restoration. Today, we're going to be talking about oak savanna what it is, its history in Minnesota and North America, and what research and industry practice tell us about implementing successful restorations of this ecosystem. And uh, with that, uh, Stephen, welcome to uh, another episode of a Dirt Rich Podcast here with SFA.
1: Thanks, Tyler. I really appreciate it. Um, I have followed FSA for quite a few years now, and I just... um, I'm, I'm very honored to be on your podcast here today. So cool. at your we're, convenience. Yes.
0: We're we're glad to have you. Um, yeah. Can you just provide us to start briefly here with a brief introduction of your educational and, and career background and, and kind of what your prior and current work is, uh, with, with Savannah restoration?
1: Certainly. Um, I attended Winona state university for my undergraduate degree in biology and teaching. And during that time I was, um, I really got into forest ecology and the hardwood forests in that area are, are phenomenal. I spent a lot of time walking and um, you know, cruising miles and miles of forested land down there. Um, after that, I went to work for the Minnesota Zoo in the education department, biology, natural history, and it was about that time I got introduced to the concept of prairie restoration, and, and being a farmer myself down in uh, Goodhue County, um, I became fascinated with the concept of native grasses and native plants. There was very little information at that time on this subject at all. There are literally like two books out there um, on prairie restoration. It was, it was just not heard of at all. Um, you know, Ron Bowen at Prairie Restoration and Prairie Nursery, Neil Deibel, um, and Alan Waydown down at Prairie Moon were some of the only pioneers doing it at this time. So um, not being somebody to sit around and and try to figure out what to do next in life, I just jumped off the Minnesota Zoo ship and started planting prairie with my tractor and the farm, trucks, trailers, herbicide equipment. And I did that for about 10, 14 years, pretty hardcore. And uh, at that point I decided to go back to school um, for a post undergraduate work um, at Madison. And it was down in Madison where, I, I, I was actually going to get out of restoration completely. I, I was kind of like I thought it had been dumbed down to a point commodified, as we might say. It's like, here's a sheet of paper. This is what you do. And I'm like, oh, we can do so much better. Um, and I was going to go into agricultural policy because just my strong ties to the land, my strong ties to the people that work for the land, um, wildlife, hunting, fishing. The whole concept of, of agriculture has always really enthralled me. And so, I was going to go into agriculture policy. And um, when I arrived there, I immediately did a restoration volunteer event with Audubon down there. And one thing led to the another, and then I just I, I went right down, right back into restoration. And and I really worked hard through my my uh, postgraduate work, um, in really all sorts of my primary work. I guess is like I was I was I. I looked through all the literature for the principal theories that we could apply to restoration ecology to make it more scientifically valid. And then I applied that. And with all my experience, it was like, oh, this is perfect. We should be following this. And it was at that time. And I remember this, Tyler. This is really an interesting moment, one of those light bulb moments. I was out. I was out. I was talking to a wetland ecologist, there, a teacher, and Quentin Carpenter is his name, and he's he's the gentleman that started their whole farmers market around the capital down there, one of the biggest in the nation. And just loved teaching, and and he was not professor like at all, so approachable, and uh, just wanted to teach and farm. So he was not even a full time professor because he wanted to farm first, teach second. <laughs> And I asked him about the lack of grassland birds, and and he kind of shrugged his shoulders. He said, there's a lot of grass been planted in my area um, for CRP, but we still don't have many birds. And he shrugged his shoulders again. He said, Maybe it's because we don't have any more animals on, on, on the grasses. And I looked and I thought, oh my God, I never thought about the animal component of agriculture. And, and, and uh, of restoration. Mm-hmm. And that was probably about 2000 and I'm going to say six. And um, that light bulb went off and uh, I went right down really deep into the whole uh, research component of grazing animals from around the world. Um, you know, what are these general principles that we can apply right here in Minnesota? And I started doing restor- uh, savannah restoration in big, big scope. Um, and a lot of that information that that I put into my head in those days and then put it back into the field and, and uh, you know, validated it through hands-on activities with the chainsaw or a fellow buncher. Uh, I'm here to share with you guys today. So I, I hope that by sharing this information, I can help us all develop better ideas and develop better frameworks for going forward with Savannah restoration. And of course, to me, as you'll find out that just implies grazing animals immediately.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Stephen, for some of that uh, background on your story. Um, so let's just start in with just, you know, what is Oak Savannah? What's the definition of Oak Savannah? And and then uh, kind of what is its history and range, really, in Minnesota, but also North America, if you want to touch on that?
1: Certainly. Um, yes. And, you know, with, with just another super quick caveat that my goal when, when I teach or instruct and, and I've taught in post-secondary settings before too, is to never tell you what to think, but to help us think. And so does that make sense to you? Yeah. Right. Right. I just want to get like, share this information. It's like, somebody's going to have a better idea down the line. And, and so anyways, um, yeah, that's so great. here's, here's where I'm at today with Savannah. Um, what is Oak Savannah? It's a really good question. Um, First of all, what's savannah? And savannah is actually a North American word. It was um, it was very early in the early 1500s down in the Caribbean. Um, some of the Spanish ships would stop and they would ask the aboriginals of this landscape, what do you call this land? And it was, you know, open grasslands with trees and they called it, it kind of comes out of what I've read, it, sabana or sabana, almost like banana with a saw in the front mm. of it. And so it is actually a North American term. And so in in my research in the world of all these uh, ecosystems and and biomes, I would propose to you that a savanna is a grassland. Hmm. The only difference between what we think of a grassland and a savanna is a savanna has trees in the grassland. So first it's a grassland. Second, it has trees in it. Those trees are principally trees that evolved with grasslands. So, um, For example, oaks are very recent, and they evolved with the grasslands and with the grazing animals. And if we look around the world at any savanna type of ecosystem, it's the same story. The trees that are associated with these grassland ecosystems evolved, emerged, came to Earth at the same time grassland ecosystems did and grazing animals. So I like to think of a a savanna as a grassland. In fact, a lot of times you'll hear me calling it grassland savannas or savanna grasslands. Um, And I don't even use the word prairie anymore. because You know, very rarely would I use the word prairie because I like to think of it as grassland ecology. Prairie is just a word for our North American grasslands. But um, so this, I'll finish it with this for that that primary um, definition. If a savanna is a grassland with trees in it, then the only difference between a savanna and a prairie are the trees. And that's a principle, Tyler, of how big of an area I look at or how long of a time period I look at. If I look at a site long enough, eventually a tree may occur. Or if I look at bigger and bigger areas, eventually trees will occur in that. So from that perspective, if I pull the camera up to a continental or even a planetary level, Earth looks to me like it's composed of grasslands with trees here and there scattered. So I always like to say that the whole evolutionary trend of grassland savanna ecosystems, that was the planet's trend, was moving in that direction. Now time-wise, um, what do we, let's, let's differentiate between savannas and then and forests. And I just wrote a comment yesterday to somebody that I'm working with here in Bloomington, Minnesota. We have 8,000 acres in the Bloomington River Valley that is really in the forested condition. And they're trying to differentiate between Oak Forest and, and savanna. And so I wrote the gentleman and he said, well, what is a forest? And I said, good question. I don't think we have an operational definition of what a forest is. And coming from Winona and Winona State, my first love of forest ecology, I can pretty well guarantee you that forest is more than just the trees. Forest is a is an ecosystem unto itself. Now, if I look into the literature, paleoecology of fossils, of what plant organisms came to earth at what time, we see a difference between grasslands and forest. Forests are by far more primitive. Um, 65 million years and older in origin. So you're talking ferns and mosses and lichens and then into the very early gymnosperms like pines and ginkgos and then into the very early flowering plants like maple trees. Savannas and grasslands occurred recently. They really showed up on earth about 30, 40 million years ago. So literally like uh, the way I see it is that the meteorite that struck and took Mm -hmm. out the dinosaurs and the forest allowed the emergence of savanna ecosystems, grassland savanna. So in that respect, we can think of savannas as being the most evolutionary advanced biome or ecosystem or plant community that's ever existed on the planet Earth. And the advancement of that, we'll talk to a little bit, but with these grazing mammals and these fruiting trees and fruiting organisms like acorn trees, hawthorn trees, hickory trees, apple trees, big fruiting trees versus maple, pine, sassafras, lilies, um, uh, and buttercups, we see the savanna grassland vegetation emerging with those grazing mammals is becoming, this is a very interesting phenomenon, the vegetation becomes more edible. It's producing massive fruits, literally with colors on it saying, please eat me. And so this whole trend of more and more edible, more advanced vegetation, more advanced, warm-blooded, endothermic, fast-running mammals to eat all this down, really produced the savanna and grassland ecosystems we say today. Now, where can I find these? Another really good question tyler and and i'm gonna I'm gonna propose to you I'm gonna throw out and then kind of argue this that literally the savannah grassland ecosystems became the dominant terrestrial planetary life form um and let me just throw out some examples for this even when I was in Winona, I know my undergraduate, my first job I got paid for locating really really high quality uh, true forest ecosystems. I mean, like super high quality. And, and I got paid by doing that. So the better I could do that and the quicker I could do it, the more money I would make. Honest to God, this is rare plants were my specialty. Mm -hmm. And what I noticed even then before I knew where Prairie was, I came to the goose, like, you know what? True forest is really, really rare. I mean, Mm -hmm. extremely rare. It just, because there's trees here doesn't mean it's true forest. I didn't know what I was looking at. Later on, I started thinking about buckthorn when I got into prairie restoration. And one day I was driving down a county road in in Goodhue County. And um, I looked at in an October woodlands and it was all oaks. And I looked, and it was just buckthorn in there. Solid understory when it's all green and nothing else is showing. And it was right then a light bulb went off in my head and I said to myself, oh, my God, I've never seen buckthorn in a true forest ecosystem. I've only seen it in Oak woodlands, oak mm. forest. Sure enough, I went back to Winona like the week later, and I walked right into a lot of the hardwood forest, right next to urban environments. Where on one side of the slope were the oak trees, where it was just full of buckthorn, but on the other northeast aspect, it was no buckthorn at all. It was maples and lilies and buttercups and ferns. The contrast was literally, literally a footstep away from one aspect to the another aspect in these ravines. And so this started to get, getting me to think that forest was extremely rare and maybe we should be considering a lot of concepts like Oak Woodlands, Oak forests. And then I turned my attention to one of my other favorite habitats, the Boundary Waters Area Wilderness and the Northern Mixed Coniferous Hardwoods up there. And I said, what about these ecosystems up here? And so I've really been working on <clears throat> trying to figure out what the historic vegetation, even of those Northern um, what we call forest areas really was like. And once again, you see white pine and red pine, although they are primitive species in origin, like, you know, with the dinosaurs, they also prefer to regenerate in grassland ecosystems after a fire. And a lot of our animals that we so much want to preserve, like moose, I just read some articles the other day. um, Moose prefer recently burned landscapes between 15 and 40 years and likewise with deer and likewise with grouse and likewise with beaver. And so all these grazing mammals, <clears throat> even in that northern um, mixed coniferous area, were probably more there were probably large grassland areas. Is the point I'm trying to make up in there. And I'm not really sure how healthy it is to think of them as forests as maybe more um, pine groves and pine savannas and with some more forested areas in it. So it's just kind of interesting to think like that underneath that premise. Then we got the African serengeti we have tropical savannas. We have most of central Europe in a savanna situation with the oak trees. I've heard through FSA many times, um, talk about the dehesia farming systems and stuff like that. How about Arctic tundra? grasses, sedges, stunted trees, grazing yeah. caribou. So we can see that when I talk about prairie, um, or when I talk about Savannah, I think savanna is a grassland. When I start looking at, since the meteorite took out forests as the dominant vegetation with the dinosaurs, birds literally, and I start looking forward in time and the, the fossil record and what I see in the landscape, I see grasses progressively and the grazing mammals literally taking over the terrestrial planet. And so here's the final thought on forest where I was walking around and when knowing in this driftless area, um, forest to me has now become these, these isolated embedded gems, beautiful gems, really rare relics from a distant world. We should do everything in our, 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 our ability to preserve these systems. They're not suitable for grazing because there's not much in, in there to graze. Right. And I think, Tyler, that true forests are on these landscapes, steep slopes facing the northeast where grazing animals couldn't get to very well. It's like, wow, you know, it's really steep. Here comes a herd of buffalo in Winona, Houston County, something right. like that. It's like it's really steep here. There's nothing edible in there, really. And there's no mm-hmm. grass for me to eat. It's a fern. I don't want to eat ferns. And so, and even fires had a hard time getting. So, think of these systems as being fire and graze resistant or, you know, um, shadows, fire for grazing shadow. And it could mean wet areas, too, where the grazing animals could not push it through back and fires couldn't get into an area. So, I like to think of our forests are embedded into a grassland savanna matrix in these graze prohibited, fire prohibited landscapes. Um, so, It's kind of an interesting concept like that, but um, it's something to think about. And as you, and anyone listening to this, as you drive around, start thinking about these concepts of oak forest, oak woodlands, other things that we call forests that maybe quite weren't forests and maybe the ecological integrity of these systems is in decline. Maybe buckthorn is actually symptomatic of our social myths that it considers in forests and not more open grassland areas. Does that kind of get to where we want to go with this.
0: Absolutely. It it brings up, you know, these these really thousand-foot level concepts of what an oak savanna is. I think is really a, an area we need to start because I think I think that even for myself there are like sort of tropes about savanna and forest and grassland and hmm. you know, what what maintained them, what created them, where they exist in say just even North America. And, and maybe, maybe it's not as simple as some of the stories we've been telling as ecologists and as just um, the cultural, you know, the people just are, are, um, are just sort of our narratives um, as people who live and farm in these areas. And, you know, when you look at the, a map of North America or travel today, even you can see this sort of progression from drier climes and, you know, certain grassland types. Extending to tall grass prairie, then savanna mixed patches of oak savanna into forest, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, eastern forest following sort of, you know, what just appears to be a simple progression of greater rainfall. Right. Um, but, you know, and I just, I think that there's a, and then so as restorationists, we look at those maps and we think, okay, well, he, where is it supposed to be what? Right? It's supposed to be prairie here because that's what it was in 1820 or whatever and it's supposed to be savannah here and it's supposed to be oak forest or maple basswood or boreal forest whatever and to a certain extent that um determines i think because of some other mis misunderstanding of how these ecosystems function and are formed and maintained you know what kind of animal impact we allow where, um, and we see it as appropriate and, yeah. um, yeah. So I, I, I wonder to what extent, you know, that concept that like Oak Savannah is almost like seen as a, a transition between gr- true grasslands and true forests. you know, to a, to a certain extent, it seems like, um, you know, you, what you had just described is, you know in some ways undermining the simplicity of that narrative
1: yeah that's yeah that's a really good point um really good topic to bring up and and i'm glad you think about this and that's that's really what i'm asking people to do is just think about it so we move away from these simple maps Um, i'll comment on some of this um and and sure enough i do believe that there is kind of that area between the forest as i'm walking in the hills of winona from the northeast slope where there's ginseng and hepatica and maidenhair firm and then i walk around to more of the southwest slope and now it's more oak and then i get to the goat prairie and suddenly it's prairie you can see where that environmental determinism we call that mm-hmm. really played out hardcore right. you know and that's what you said was uh, precipitation patterns And John Weaver, you know, starting his studies on prairie in 1914, all the way up to, like, 1961, uh, he was very climatic oriented. And then Robert Whittaker, a famous ecologist in the 1950s in the Smoky Mountains, literally said it was completely aspect. You tell me the direction of the aspect, I'll tell you the vegetation there. And so, again, that climatic um, control was really uh, very prominent in our ecological teaching. However, what that modeling fails to include are the grazing animals, the right. biotic controls, and what the Odoms, the two brothers, Howard and Eugene, really super famous ecologists. The first ecology textbook, 1953 was written by Eugene Odom. Um, I mean, some of the greatest ecologists in the world will call the Odoms mm. the greatest ecologists. It's a mm. surprising, humble group of people. Anyways, In their frameworks, they would show that as ecosystems evolved over time, like for 30 million years, since we had, you know, um, uh, oak trees and grasses and herbivores, big mammal herbivores, that the biology would come under a higher degree control over what was on the land. It was really recently that we in Minnesota had three species of elephants living here. Right you know, one mammoth, two mastodons, the beaver were six feet tall. There were humans living here at this time. Um, We had wild horses, we had caribou, we had moose, we had four species of buffalo, and the largest buffalo was twice the size of the current buffalo, 4,000 pounds. Right. I mean, that's like 70, 80 pounds of grass a day. Here's a tooth. I know we're not on video, but I'm holding a tooth in my hand. I found this on a beach in Ely, Minnesota, in the 1990s after heavy rain. Sent to the University of Minnesota, came back that that was Bison uh, giganticus. That's probably the wrong species name, but it was the, the lo- one. in Ely, Minnesota. You wow. know,
0: yeah.
1: And think of the think of so so think of that point. And those, You know, we're talking like um, these these mammoths eating whole trees. Beavers six feet tall eating whole trees. And so I always like to ask people how many trees you think were growing along aquatic ecosystems when there were 600 million beaver walking around North America. So think of that. And then humans come along and we invent some new type of technology like the elatil and the spear that we could kill the big, slow things. Hunting was good in those days and we camp where the animal gets killed. You know, we live there for two weeks and we go kill the next, you know, so maybe that overkill, I really believe more in that overkill hypothesis, but then, Pre-Columbian, and so this is another whole thing in, in your your maps. Those maps are based on the pre-settlement vegetation right. maps. Yep. 1850s, 1860s, all the way to 1909. So it's quite a range in there. But if we go to pre-Columbian times, you know, the 1491 concept, before guns, before traps, before the fur trade, before the bushmeat industry, before the hide industry, literally wiped out all the herbivores. 300 years, at least 200 years here in Minnesota before the pre-settlement survey was done. I mean, think about that. We lost all these bison, all these beaver, just gone. You know, um, the Lakota uprising in 1862 was spurred on. They were starving to death. There was nothing left to eat. They had guns. There still wasn't nothing left to eat. So we removed the herbivores 200 years before the pre-settlement maps that we have were constructed. So let's go back to the pre-Columbian times before Columbus got here. And you know the, the highest technology we had was the arrow. There were no horses. And some of the archeologists in Minnesota have called the Lakota Indians. They didn't give them the name Lakota or Ojibwe or Anishinaabe They used the name Prairie Lakes people. These people lived on lakes. Because chasing buffalo before you had horses and guns, it was like, <laughs> that was difficult, yeah, right? So they did some farming, they ate bullheads and muskrats and wild rice and tubers, you know, it was a good life. Um, but the point was they didn't have much of an impact on herbivores at that time. Mm. So the pre-Columbian vegetation is always what I like to look at these maps with these lines on it. What did it really look like when the herbivores were on this? 200 years after herbivore removal, with the pre settlement vegetation, the Marshner map, the original vegetation of Minnesota's capstrain, is probably a very transitional state going to where we are at today, these highly afforested, invasive species infested um, conditions. So, uh, so, to review that, um, from the climatic control over where those lines should be, the Odom suggests that the biology would have pushed those, the grazing animals would have chased those forests back deeper into bringing the grasslands with them. Fred Clements, the great community ecologist, actually taught at University of Minnesota in the early 1900s. He's the gentleman that gave us the names, Zurich, Dry, mesic Forest, Prairie. He gave us the science of community ecology. He said, I was reading him the other night, he said that Grazing animals and fire could change a forest into a grassland, but the lack of grazing and the lack of fire would not revert to a true forest. Hmm. Even though it would be wooded, it would not become forest. So he's saying once you alter the forest, it's so old and primitive, it's not going to come back forest. But the grazing animals that biotic control will change forest into, into these grazing ecosystems. Here's a question I was asked once by another prominent ecologist. He said, every point east of the 100th meridian, and that kind of runs through Pier, South Dakota, all the way down to Texas, all the way up into through Alberta. Every point of uh, east of that line where you talked about the precipitation right. increasing would have been forest. And then he looked at me, and one eyebrow went up, he said, but it wasn't and that's a powerful statement Hmm. and that's the whole concept that the grazing animals are holding the system in disequilibrium and systems in disequilibrium like the battery in your car provide a lot of power they do a lot of work ecosystem function and when we take that when your battery goes into equilibrium your car your battery's dead your car won't start so it's just kind of a um so think about the pre-settlement Pre-Columbia, think about the herbivores on the land, and think about a lot of those lines that you see right now. Tyler are really just artificial abstractions that we drew on a map one day without thinking deep through time on what really made this vegetation happen. Does right. that kind of answer your questions?
0: Absolutely. So, um, a question I have then to go to push forward on is: What happens? to you know what what is happening to a oak savanna when the fire and the herbivores are removed what what's changing and then what what do we see happen through time there
1: yeah really good question um and i'm just gonna let, this will probably happen to all savannas like aspen sure. parklands yeah. okay good um So I think that's a really good question. I've I've, I've developed this this model, which um, I actually used, you know, with FSA one time, like 2017, we did a nice little presentation on it. Um, And the model is called terrestrial, meaning land, eutrophification, meaning lots of nutrients build up, it gets icky afforestation. And afforestation means trees occur where trees did not dominate the landscape before. So it becomes completely tree not just one tree or 10 trees per acre type of situation, but 100% trees. So terrestrial eutrophication a4 station. The acronym is T. You know, you always got to have a good acronym. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> right, right. And and so this and this is just a framework to help me think. And again, I'll throw it out there. People, please modify this. And I'd and, and love to have more discussions on that. But so here's what would happen when we remove the voice. I think any one of your participants that are actually running – uh, livestock. Who, as kids, had livestock in the woods, and then they took the livestock out of the woods, or like on our farm where we planted CRP in former cornfields in the 1980s and 90s, and we've watched these lands change dramatically over time. And so, the first thing that happens is, without the grazing and the fire, is the vegetation builds up, and tips over and decomposes. A tree limb falls on the ground and decomposes. The leaves fall on the ground, and decompose, and the nitrogen, instead of going into animal tissue, and I'm talking insects that follow the, the, the bison or the cattle, whatever it is, right. I'm talking about the birds, this massive food web that's been created by the grazing animals, all these organisms that follow these grazing animals from mice to the dung beetles to the flies to the birds that are eating flies is huge. Um, Ernest Hemingway's uh, movable feast comes to mind when I picture these animals coming into this uh, grassland so all that uh, all that vegetation just rots now and the nutrients are going drip 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 back into the ecosystem and we don't see anything really it's like frogs and water that we've just turned the heat up on right. um, so we really don't see changes dramatically but it's those slow variables that drip 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 or another straw on the camel's back another straw on the camel's back that suddenly come out of nowhere and surprise the heck out of us all the frogs in the pot are dead the camel's back is broken and suddenly there's so much nitrogen in our soils that the weeds Canada thistle burdock um burning nettles um, buckthorn just say hey my god it's shady over there there's a lot of nitrogen I love that kind of condition and look at the shade of the taller vegetation. Well, let's back up. So, all that nitrogen in there. And you know what happens when you put nitrogen on a plant? It grows taller and faster. In fact, it'll tip over if you put too much nitrogen on it, right? Your plants will lodge. They'll tip yep. over. The vegetation is growing taller and it falls over and dies, more nitrogen. So, the next group goes taller and taller. And pretty soon, the woody species get in there. They're going taller and taller. And it's not like the slow growing oaks that are winning this race. Right. It's the fast growing guys. It's like, I'm going to want you, buddy. Yeah. And what's really interesting about these high nitrogen loving plants, that's an old term, extension from the 1940s, would call them nitrophytes, uh, plants that like nitrogen. And they would say, don't put too much fertilizer on because you'll get these nitrophytes like Canada thistle, pigweed, salt thistle. Notice those last two, pigweed, salt thistle, kind of tells you about some manure, that, that application right. back Mm-hmm. So, these nitrophytes are whopping out the old species, creating all this shade that literally eliminates 250 plant species, maybe another 250 animal species that were associated with the more open savanna grassland state. So, now you got the bare soils. And I think you've seen that in a lot of your, the woods you walked into. If you're in a bare soil wooded lot, I can guarantee you it wasn't forest, it was a savanna that has lost. 200, 300, 500 species of plants, 200, 300, 500. Think of the microbes in the soil. has changed, right. completely different. So now that the nitrogen is just building up and building up in the fastest, and, and here's your last old oaks. you've seen that. I mean, you guys, you champion this in, in your presentations, you champion oak rescuing and what we do here with FSA, University of Minnesota Extension. That's why I, I love your cause so much. Um, you see those old oaks. I've seen some of your farmers come out and say, I I cut around those old oaks, I saved that tree, we got some grass, we're grazing around it, the tree seems happy. You know, it's like, wow, absolutely. Right. So you see the old oaks in there, but like in most of these sites, they're tipping over. Bam. Bam. Pretty soon we'll have no more oaks. Keep stone
0: What's happening to those old oaks in this tea during this tea process to weaken them to you know what's happening to make them uh, less resilient, low, you know, lower longevity. What's causing them to die in an a forested condition yep, uh, when they were question. so happy in the open, you know, more uh, more open savanna
1: condition? Good question. So number one, that oaks because they are grassland trees, aspen because they are grassland trees, hawthorn, um, you know, just all these trees that evolved with the grasslands, they need sunlight to germinate and establish. Right. So they are intolerant of shade. Now, some oaks, like the red oaks, which are a lower quality, less long lived, yep. <laughs> less edible species, are, are higher tolerant to shade, but at a certain point, they too will lose sure. out to these faster growing weeder, hackberry, red elm, um, ash yep. trees, etc. even maple. Once maple gets a hold, boy, it's, they stabilize everything in a deep, dense shade. So the oaks can't go. Now, the big oaks that remain there, Tyler, um, the high humidities, and this is just completely speculation on my part, but since these trees are really used to open areas, and, and here's a really interesting thing too. We, you talk about, um, some, um, some research in the Serengeti will show that where the earth, and, and I think again, a lot of your producers, your farmers, your grazers with your group will say, I would always tell, tell I would always ask grazers, do you have trees in your pasture? No. And I wish we did. That was always one comment. And the other one was like, yeah, we do. I go, where are the grazers on a hot day? Underneath those trees. And they're eating that vegetation down just like we would mow it, which is the term of lawns. The word lawn came from frequently grazed areas, allowing that cool breeze to flow around that oak tree, a lot lower humidities, a lot cooler breeze. Remember that oak tree, when it's functioning well, the roots are pumping up up to 500 gallons of water a day transpiring out of that tree. Think of the humidity; it's just going right down. And I'm sure you in your life have sat down underneath the shade of maybe um, a wooden structure or a shade of one of these trees. It's actually evaporating water. It's like natural air conditioning. Right. It's evaporating. Mm-hmm. So the oaks are working to cool the whole system, which is cool, drier weather is not conducive to pestilence such as bacteria. Fungi, biting insects, and so they're when they become surrounded with this a force of vegetation. It becomes a lot higher humidities, a lot warmer, a lot wetter in these conditions, and eventually that helps spawn, um, you know, the, the pestilence that I just spoke of. You know, these diseases that we see and in insect outbreaks and things right. like that.
0: And the so trees guess, are just
1: weakened. They're hot.
0: Right. Um, the tree itself is is hot and it doesn't the humidity is helping to transfer and 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 spread the funk like say fungal uh, yes yep. Yep. like I'm thinking okay so would you suspect that um say oak wilt yep. and for oak blight that we're seeing yep. take over or yep. not yet but I mean it's 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 got uh it's got a foothold in certain areas yep. of the state that yep. that is exacerbated by the tea process the a forested condition that yeah. most of our oaks are in
1: Yep, the, the exasperated is a perfect word to use with it, with that. Um, and again, this is very speculative, but it's you know what generally what I see. I saw a massive oak tree. I think it's forty two inches. close by to where I live. They left it grow the vegetation around it, and um, it grew up in ten foot tall burdock, and then that tree took on the oak blight. Beautiful, beautiful bur oak, and now for two years in a row, it's dropped its leaves like in July and. The burdock is 10 feet tall underneath it. So that's the accumulation of all those acorns and all those leaves for centuries underneath that tree or literally, um, you know, the past hundred years. I know that site was pastured before. Now, when they mowed around the tree, the tree seemed fine. So do this sometime. Look at your healthiest oaks and then your more sickly looking oaks. And see how many of those healthy oaks are in areas we mow constantly, like right. city parks or school lawns. And then look where we haven't mowed in a long time. Look at the health of those trees and just do kind of a mental assessment of that as you're driving. Does that make sense to you? It you- does. I, I, I wonder because I do see like, I do see
0: forests sometimes, forests, woodlands, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, in quotes. Yep. Uh, you know, if I go to my in-laws in Wisconsin, I'll see like pine, oak you know interesting forest types to me here uh, uh interesting assemblages of trees and they, they do seem healthy yeah. but but maybe that's because they grew up there maybe genetically some oak trees you know have the capacity to grow up and be yeah. healthy in oak forest type you know where it's a little bit more closed in but um if it's not the right sort of genetic history of those Mm. trees maybe i don't know how to think about that you know i see i've seen both i've seen where like yeah those those trees are dying they're clearly they they grew up in a much more open setting and they're very unhappy with where where they're at now and then i've seen you know oak forests where the trees seem to be okay but Interesting. um, interesting that's just observation from driving by you know
1: Uh, It's those observations, though, that we as scientists or practitioners or grazers need to, you know, oh, that's interesting. Now, I need to look for that as I go. Um, In your Wisconsin situation, those might be on drier soils, like by hate word, I'm thinking, and so the less humidity would allow those to be healthier. Pretty Um, sandy.
0: Pretty yep. sandy soils in the central, yep. central So I
1: was just predicting that maybe these are sandy soils and that yep. would make sense. So I'm I'm trying to work with you on this a little bit from from my, I do know the area that you're kind of up in at least to the east of it, Brainerd and um, Little Falls. I worked in some Savannah restoration in that area. And it, it's so cool because that is the white pine, oak, savanna, hazel, it's so cool up there. And, and now a lot of those sites are really, really a forested. I'll, I'll give you one, I'll give you one other piece of data just to put into your thinking. And you know, data is not the science, it's the interpretation. So if I give you data, you can interpret it, and then it becomes science. But um, in, in in the Bloomington River Valley, for example, when I did an inventory down there in 2017, the youngest oak that we saw, and there's a lot of 250, 300-year-old oaks in there, and then they come down to about maybe 70-year-old oaks, and then there's nothing younger than that. And that's the time that grazing was ceased in, in the floodplain down there and, and on the steep slopes that could not be plowed. That's really, I had a gentleman show me a picture. We were standing there. We could barely see through the buckthorn up to the hill. He pulled out a picture. He said, this is where we're standing right here. And it was oak savanna with some Angus halfway up there. 1957 was written on the, on the bottom of the Polaroid. So we have not had any oak regeneration due to the intense shade would be my theory in that um, since 70 years so it's kind of think of if we had infant mortality in the human race of you know 100 like that we'd be extinct yeah and so sometimes you have to look at some of those trees are these are these organisms already extinct you know unless we radically drastically do something and and we have to remember that again we talked about early on about the origin of the savanna species these are highly advanced these are amazing keystone species on the planet earth i'm I would say we lose these oaks, Um, that's not a good sign. You know, it's it's not, we really need to do that. Uh, Just one really quick backup on the red oak. Um, This is a really interesting story. The red oak tree are more um, shade tolerant. Yep. And in the 1940s, Donald Carlos Petey, in a classic book called Natural History of Trees in North America, he wrote that in Illinois, his childhood place in the 20s, they watched grove after grove of these white oak savannas or <clears throat> oak savannas be overtaken by these red oaks. And there was um, somebody that actually told me that down in Wisconsin, they actually purposely released oak wilt to deal with the red oaks invading mm. these white oak groves. Wow. And so, yeah, really, really interesting. Now, if you get a million red oaks in a stand you've seen that before, obviously disease is going to spread very fast too. So you've got that working with the disease thing too. It's just right through the system like that. It's like fire. literally. It does
0: spread fast. Yeah. It actually little falls, as you mentioned earlier, seems to be a
1: a hotbed for, for right now. Yeah. Yeah.
0: They're trying to keep it from crossing the Mississippi, I think. Right. So anyways, um, I guess to, to shift gears just a little bit, can we talk about, um, you know, the uniqueness of Oak Savannah, and what it offers to society um why why is there such renewed renewed interest it it seems to me that there's a lot of renewed interest in oak savannah and um a lot of different groups a lot of different interest groups are interested in oak savannah so why you know what what's what's in it for what's in it for people
1: that's a really good question and i've noticed exactly what you're saying i'm like wow um five years ago, very few people were talking about Savannah and suddenly it's just really peaked. And so I'm, I'm a, that's a really good question. I'm going to, I know I will think more about that, um, over the next few days, but here's, here's kind of my, here's kind of what I'll come from right here, right now. And that to give us some information that we can think about on, on this phenomenon that we're seeing a sudden increase in interest in old Savannah savannas of all types like I was saying, really represent a highly advanced life form. And I'm talking about the whole savanna, the grazing animals, the plants, the funguses, the bacteria, the whole system. And I think intrinsically we have that sense to see healthy land. And I've always told my students, um, if I trained you correctly, I could land you on a planet someplace in outer space and you could tell, you didn't have to know any of the species, but you could tell immediately if it was healthy or not by looking at the structure and kind of what was there, you know, is it bare soil, is it full of life, is it full of sound, is it full of smell, or is it kind of like icky looking, you know, and they laugh about that, but you kind of know what I'm saying, you know, You can, yeah. especially as somebody that's grazing, I think some of the grazers, <laughs> like, they can tell right away, they walk into a site and like, this site needs work, or this site's really healthy, and they're just intrinsically, they can pick up on that. You
0: can feel it. Yeah.
1: You can feel it. Right. And I think that's a good thing. We, we, we've we gotten to teach that in our schools. You can feel health, integrity. So because Savannah is so advanced, it also represents the most functional terrestrial ecosystem ever. It also provides us with more ecosystem services than any other terrestrial ecosystem ever far more than the tropical rainforest again remember tropical rainforests are very primitive Um, there's not herds of grazing mammals in the tropical rainforest Um, there's no the soils are there there are no soils you see what I'm saying? It's a very yeah. primitive state. And, there's and when also you say
0: a- when you use the word primitive versus advanced, you, you're talking about like the time back in history that yep. it sort of evolved. You're talking yep. about exactly. how long ago yep. or how recent, you know, so to speak. Right.
1: Yep. Yeah. It's um, uh, the Model it, T car is an amazingly. Beautiful museum piece car. Some people have them, but they do not dominate our transportation system. We've evolved from the Model T. Okay. So I, it's kind of like thinking forest and Savannah. You're looking at that now because it's so functional, functional ecosystems are highly provisional of ecosystem services, soil building, carbon sequestration, regulating nitrogen, you know, regulating our climate, water purification, supplying us with good food. Remember, it's highly edible ecosystem. And are we somehow um, coming to feel those ecosystem services, these wonderful soils, the carbon sequestration, the food, those acorns that feed literally everything? the wolf would say, nah, I don't eat acorns. But then the wolf, you, if you ask the wolf, do you eat the deer that eat the egg? Oh yeah. I love the deer, especially after they've eaten those acorns, you know? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, the whole ecosystem is is wrapping around that tree. What did Doug tell me say? The the um, the um, guy that studied how many lepidopteran, which are weren't caterpillars that lived on white oaks was like 564 and green oh. ash, it's like 40 yeah. and buckthorn it's like 14. So again, the milk trees feeding everybody and it's a symbiotic relationship. You, you know, I, I think they have to be uh, literally the point is they need to be eaten or they die from a right. So are we intrinsically feeling that the health that that tree and that ecosystem provides, and then just quickly, two other things, one, if a savanna is a grassland, and if you go into a forest, oak forest, and a, and a pure grassland, the diversity is, you know, maybe 50 species in the oak forest, maybe 200 in the prairie. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you bring in the combination of the two, the part shade, part sun, and it's shady in the morning, but sunny in the afternoon right. areas, your biodiversity goes off the charts. Does that make sense to you? It's just like, Absolutely. oh my God, it's like break mm-hmm. like all these species... And then the final thing, too, and I'll suggest, and I think this is a really cool concept I'm trying to push with with some of the people I'm working with in Bloomington right now on the Sustainability Commission. If you want a model for the most sustainable terrestrial ecosystem on the planet that produced more food, that sequestered more carbon, regulated more nutrients, purified more water, mitigated more floods than any other terrestrial ecosystem in the world as your model, on real-time solar energy, no gasoline or petroleum involved, that's Savannah. Right. So that becomes our model saying, well, what would the savannah do? Um right. just another point. I'm working in a lot of solar arrays right now, doing the vegetation management plans for mm-hmm. it. And I keep telling these people, um, you know, and and that, you know, I um, it's good to have solar energy, but I, I would love to see them get off the ground high enough that we can do other things underneath it, like grazing. Right. And I asked, I told him one time, well, if we really wanted to see the ultimate mechanism on the planet evolved over 30 million years of evolution for solar collection, we'd look at the oak tree. And maybe the panels in the future are shaped like a giant oak tree with all these little panels that, we, you know, yeah. and they laugh, but <laughs> like, why can't we have an engineer design something that conceptually, just like, Hey, this is what it would be. And this is what it would take. And again, I like to think of the model T to, you know, our cars yeah. we're driving today, sure. you know, in a period of that time. And I think, I think that would be something. So I think. I think that's why Savannah and I also, you know, my my major you've heard this before too, is that we came from Savannah, you know, and I've seen slideshows where all of our structures, even if they're they're completely made of cement in a park, create the savannah, you know, partial shade, partial mm-hmm. sun, mold grasses, and, and maybe we're starting to reconnect with that. And I, I know in Illinois they've made October Oaktober. So that they can, you know, look at all their trees and just, you know, yeah, yeah. So anyway, it's kind of an interesting thing like that. Yep, you're right. It's catching on, bud.
0: Yeah, it's great. Um, I I do have, so on the carbon sequestration front, you know, obviously Mm -hmm. with climate change barreling down or we're in the thick of it, you know, I guess Mm -hmm. already, um, you know, there's interest in, um, well, at a minimum Trying to do less harm as far as releasing carbon and methane, et cetera, into in greenhouse gas gases into the atmosphere. And um, we know from research that silvopasture, um, which brought me to oak savannas um, and my farm, just being sort of historically in that range. Um, but really, the the concepts of silvopasture as an agricultural practice um, was what got me jazzed in the first place. And um, you know, we know that those systems have the potential to sequester a lot of carbon. And um, particularly when we're planting trees into you know old fields or open pastures, when we're adding trees where there are n- no trees, what about the systems? You know, there's a, a lot of interest in, in in protecting the forests on Earth now because we see them as carbon sinks. But I wonder about degraded forests and a forested savanna systems that do not appear to be very healthy. And whether, uh, you know, they're being invaded by buckthorn uh, very quickly. And and I wonder about, you know, for an A-forested oak savanna system, if we were to sort of restore that by removing the trees that are not the large oaks, you know, in the short run, we'd be potentially releasing some carbon um, by li- by, you know, depending on what we did with those trees. But right now there's not a lot of markets for it. So I think it often gets chipped or burned or you know run to some kind of processor um at minimum it doesn't get it doesn't it doesn't store carbon for very long probably whatever route it goes through but in the long run does does a restored oak savanna of maybe offer better carbon benefits for you know the global climate and our greenhouse gas situation you know, th- then, then to not restore it and to just leave the trees alone. I get, I'm getting the sense of like, we should just leave all the trees alone, you know, and don't um interfere with them because we don't want to liberate any carbon. But I'm wondering about, well, maybe in the short run, you know, shifting back to a, a really healthy savanna system could, could bring even better benefits over
1: decades. Um, yeah.
0: Short-term release.
1: Yeah, really, really well thought out question there. I mean, that, that's awesome, Tyler. Um, so I, I'll give you some information I have to think about. Um, first of all, you're slow and fast. Very incredible thinking on, on that. And um, there's fast variables that we always focus on. I mean, buckthorn all of a sudden appearing as a fast variable. And we kill it with a an side and then we walk away and it comes back. And so that's a fast variable behavior of a system. Remember when I talked about the drip? drip drip of the nitrogen into the soil and suddenly the camel's back broke that's a slow variable and at the end of the day our management for you know longevity for ultimate sustainability needs to consider those slow variables because they ultimately constrain the structure the function of that ecosystem. So that's that fast variable, slow variable situation. And all of our resource management activities are on the fast things, you know, oh, it's an invasive species, kill it, you know, not, and we're not thinking about the long-term type yes. situation. Remember I said kind of at the beginning is I believe that buckthorn is only symptomatic of these aforested sites. Right. Um, I gave a talk at the upper Midwest invasive species conference on T, literally terrestrial eutrophia and aforestation as a major driver of, you know, uh, invasive species. And it wasn't well received, as you can imagine. They're like, we wanted to know how many quarts per acre <laughs> to kill X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And I'm like, no, no, no. So, you know, I've been doing that for 30 years, man. Um, we, we need to be doing something different. So anyways, fast variable, slow variable. And so you thinking about the slower things, ultimately, that's the direction we need to think. We have to deal with the fast ones up front. I have to kill the buck farm to do the oak savannah restoration. Right. But I'm looking at the, the slower point. So, This is perfect.
0: This is a perfect segue, actually, I think, to what should be uh, round two on the podcast where we actually talk about
1: restoration Oak Savannah. So let's uh, pause here and I'll thank
0: you for this introduction
1: on Oak Savannah. Thanks so much for thinking about all this stuff, because it's been hard for me to have discussions with people that. Oh, that's a good question, you know, and I feel like I'm always telling. So I love the questions you have. So keep thinking, bud. And uh, I'll look forward to doing this again. Okay.
0: Absolutely. Well, thanks everyone for another episode here of Dirt Rich. Dirt Rich is produced by the Sustainable Farming Association. We believe that agriculture done well heals. For more resources and to tap into the Farmer to Farmer Network, visit us at sfa-mn.org.